The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, Lord. When evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took, with, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So, week three of Ask the Pastor, and our first question today is about translations. And it asks about literal translations versus meaning translations. What's the difference? So the simple answer, a literal translation is word for word, often keeping the same order, even if it doesn't quite make sense in the language into which it's being translated. Um, popular examples of word for word include the King James Bible and the English Standard Bible. A meaning translation is less concerned with the word for word and focused more on the ideas and intentions of the passage, ranging from thought to thought, like with a sentence, or to, to a paraphrase, like of a larger chunk. Now, if you picture a spectrum that is word for word over here and paraphrase over here and all the translations along this line, um, Examples of the thought-to-thought -thought include the NRSV near this word-for-word -word end and the NIV near the paraphrase end. And then popular paraphrase examples include the Living Bible, which is closer to the thought-for-thought -thought middle section, and the Message, which is way over here as a paraphrase all the time. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version is the primary translation used in the ELCA. It's what we print every week. And it is the English favorite for scholarly work. So now if you're sitting there in your seats wondering, well, which translation is the best? I'm gonna echo my colleague, the great Julia Seymour, who whenever she is asked about the best translation of the Bible, always says, whichever one you will read. Whichever translation you will read is the best Bible for you to get for study and devotion. I also recommend that you look up other translations once in a while for comparison. What new ways, what new things do you hear and understand Psalm 23 when you read different translations next to each other? And remember that every act of translation is an act of interpretation. Even within the same language, like Old English into modern English. There's some differences. That requires translation and interpretation. And the work of translating involves interpretation, making educated guesses about what the text intends. So moving now to the second question, which is the bulk of today's sermon. How should we consider texts like the Gnostic Gospels, other ancillary texts like Luther's large catechism, 
And what about other sources of theological discourse like radio, podcasts, and television? So let's start with defining a little bit about what we're talking about. Canon. Canon is what is accepted as genuine. Canonical works are accepted as genuine, accurate, and authoritative. The biblical canon, our Bible, is accepted as genuine, accurate, and authoritative by Christian adherents. Within contemporary Christianity, there really isn't debate anymore about what does or does not belong in the New Testament. We're pretty good saying it's these 27 books. We've got four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, 21 letters, and the book of Revelation. But with the Old Testament, we accept all 39 books that form the Jewish canon. Roman Catholic and Orthodox traditions accept an additional 11 and 14 books, respectively, in their canons. Anglicans, Lutherans, and other Protestants call these books the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books, meaning of, a, of sacred books or literary works forming a secondary canon. So it's a second little canon within the whole canon. And maybe you've seen Bibles at the bookstore that say, with Apocrypha on the cover. In the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the Apocrypha is stated to be read for example of life and instruction of manners, but are not applied to establish any doctrine. So the Apocrypha, according to Anglicans, is to be used as a guide for daily life, but it doesn't inform doctrine. So our biblical canons, Jewish and Christian, were formed over centuries of debate about what was and wasn't genuine, what is and isn't authoritative. Lots of politics in church, even millennia ago. Determining canon of the Jewish Bible, or the Old Testament, was especially difficult as many of the texts were orally passed down, spoken, for centuries before they were ever written. Even Jesus walking around first century Palestine didn't have the whole canon that we do today. And I'm talking the Jewish canon. It wasn't set yet in first century Palestine. So most of the New Testament was written in the first century, though the earliest fragments of these books date only to the early second century. So our earliest copies are likely just that, copies of the originals. Manuscripts of the entire New Testament and the Old Testament with Apocrypha date to about the mid-fourth century, so the mid-300s. Now, talking about some of these other sources of theological discourse, such as the Gnostic Gospels, um, these claim to be a source of divine revelation like our canon is. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. In general, Gnosticism was, is, considered a heretical movement that was effectively quashed um, in the early church. But in 1945, an archaeological dig near Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt uncovered 52 4th century manuscripts, a collection of religious texts varying widely from one another as to when, where, and by whom they were written. Let me just re-emphasize that. That was 52 texts, 52 manuscripts, 1,600 years old that had been preserved buried, hidden, forgotten about for 1,600 years. 
This collection of manuscripts quickly became known as the Nag Hammadi Library, and it includes the Gospel of Thomas, a collection of Jesus' sayings, and it, it is perhaps the best known of the Gnostic writings. The points of view within these documents diverge so much, it is almost certain that they did not come from the same group or movement. But there must have been some commonality, or known, or at least assumed, by whoever collected all of these manuscripts. James M. Robinson, introducing the library's revised edition in English, writes, the text can be read at two levels, what the original author may have intended to communicate and what the text may subsequently have been taken to mean. In 1978, the first modern language translation of the Nag Hammadi Library was published, and it launched renewed scholarship and interest in Gnosticism and other writings of the early church. While these texts remain outside the canon, and probably should, they do hold relevance to us today as we seek to know better and to better understand the early Christian church and its context, what is in the biblical canon, and Western civilization as a whole. Such texts and other early Christian heresies like Marcionism can be read and studied alongside what is canon to help us better understand scripture and our own theological understandings. For example, we can say to ourselves, this saying of Jesus in Thomas is like this story in Matthew. How does that help me to better understand the story in Matthew? Study of these, heres these heresies may even help us identify modern heresies and false prophecies and how they have come about or maybe why they proliferate. Now on some other texts, documents, like Luther's small and large catechisms and what we should do with them. Dating to the earliest days of the Christian church when the Greek word katecho, to sound again or from above, was used by Paul in Galatians 6.6 6 to denote Christian instruction. By the second century, katecho had come to refer to pre-baptismal instruction of catechumens. So we baptized once you had been instructed in the Christian faith, not baptized you and then instructed you in the Christian faith. By the time Luther had taken over the catechetical, say that, preaching in Wittenberg, he found a lot of questionable, questionable theology published in other catechisms. So he wrote the small catechism for pastors and preachers and set forth within it the very Lutheran question to everything. Voss is dust. What is this? He also asked, how does this happen? What does this mean? And what does this signify? As access to the world became more widely available, the small catechism became standard for home study of scripture and theology. The large catechism, or German catechism, originated in Luther's sermon on the basic texts of Christian teaching. It covers a lot of the same material as the small, but in much greater detail. And it also at the end adds a brief exhortation on confession, which, plug for next week, happens to be part of next week's question set. So both of Luther's catechisms are in the Book of Concord, the Confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. This hefty tome, first published in June 1580, is the historical doctrinal standard of the Lutheran Church in all its flavors, and consists of 10 creedal documents recognized as the authoritative as authoritative for Lutherans since the 16th century. 
So accepting the Book of Concord as our doctrinal standard means we recognize it to be a faithful exposition of the Bible. And the Holy Scriptures are to be the sole, divine source and norm of all Christian doctrine. So Bible is number one, way up here at the top, and the source of divine revelation. And the Book of Concord is like number two or something. And it sets our doctrinal standards for things like the sacraments and how we respond to the living word as a community of faith. It helps us to understand divine revelation of scripture. Lots of other texts and sources of theological discourse exist, obviously. One of my favorites and a foundational piece of theological writing is Luther's 1520 treatise, The Freedom of a Christian. He begins it with the paradoxical statement, the Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. The Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant subject to all. Like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel is a discourse on ethical living, freedom is the Christian ethical standard of living in which we as Christians are duty bound to ensure the health and well-being of our neighbor and set free by the Spirit to love our neighbor as Christ has loved us. To refocus, hopefully a little bit more in on the question, how ought we consider and use non-scriptural sources? I think it ought to be similar to how we read scripture, but still keeping the Bible as the normative and authoritative standard is number one. And what I mean by this is we ought to read the Bible as a source of divine revelation and instruction in how, how to love, not whom to love. Because Jesus told us to love everybody. That question is answered. We ought to read the Bible for inclusion, not exclusion. Jesus welcomed and fed Judas. So should we. When we read other texts like catechisms, Gnostic, gospel, Gnostic writings, theological treaties, or other explanations, or listen to people like on TV, the radio, podcasts, and so on, we should be asking if this is a source of or a tool for spiritual good? Does this open up new ways of engaging with scripture? Does this help to change you and me for a deeper relationship with God, growing us in faith, active in love for our neighbor? Scripture study should help us to look outwards, beyond ourselves and our homes, beyond what is comfortable not in words for a me and Jesus sort of relationship that denies care and compassion to our neighbor, especially those who are poor, sick, vulnerable, hungry, and oppressed. Accepting the canon as genuine, accurate, and authoritative does not mean we believe in the Bible. That would make us biblicists or something else that isn't really Christian. As Christians, we believe in God. And the Bible is the cradle or the manger that holds the living word. It is our faithful duty and obligation to ask questions of this living word, to engage with its historical and social context, to hear the living word today. That sort of engagement can be had by reading and exploring other sources alongside the scriptures like other ancient Near East mythologies. Compare Noah's story in the flood to other flood stories from that 
same time and region. What do you learn about Noah? We can read the Gnostic Gospels alongside the canonical Gospels and ask, what does this mean? That this Gnostic Gospel says this, but the Synoptic says this. When we explore other texts, other sources alongside our accepted canon, we break open what we have always known, what we have always been told, and we make room for new ideas, new understandings, and a deeper faith that asks of us what Jesus commands, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to follow the prophets who admonish us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God and to extend God's grace given to us, to one another, and to all people. Amen.